Welcome, welcome to our Monday evening gathering. And, you know, just as I was uh, sitting here, as many of you are arriving, it, and this might sound strange, but it really did brighten my heart just to be able to see all of you, that here we are in our community here. Uh, it's like I get to behold a community that's interested in exploring you could say a different way or a more skillful way of being in the world. And even though, you know, I've, I've done this so much, it, I think it touches me in a particular way tonight to see all of you here and to gather together for this exploration of the Dharma. I think it's especially given the, the you know, witnessing the, I, what I would say is the worst of humanity in terms of violence whether that be in Ukraine, of what's going on there, or even in Burma or Myanmar, or you know, still in Ethiopia, all the suffering due to the civil war in Ethiopia, or in the South Sudan or Yemen, the Mexican drug war, the Boko Haram insurgency, which still continues to plague places like Nigeria and Cameroon. And I know most of you probably know the list goes on in terms of armed conflict violence and the tragedy of it. And, and I think the one of the reasons why my heart brightens with having this chance to, to hang out with all of you is because uh, I feel like when we come together to explore the Dharma and to practice the Dharma, it feels like to me that we we get to plant different kinds of seeds. And yeah, they might be small seeds, but I feel like they're important seeds, given the troubled world that we live in. So thank you. Thank you for coming this evening and joining this exploration. And And what I'd like to share with you tonight is you could say, a particular seed <laughs> that we have an opportunity to to plant if it if it resonates for you, and it's the seed of uh, and this has been an important aspect of my practice to really continue to expand and broaden my vision of what this path is all about. And in order to explain this, I'd like to start with a story. It's a Zen story, but it will you know it, I think it really informs this world of insight meditation and informs this modern Theravada world. And the story is about um, this Zen master, the Zen master Dogen, A.A. Dogen or Dogen Keegan. And he's a great Zen master. He's uh, from the 13th century and he was the founder of uh, Soto Zen in Japan. And very early on in his practice, he decided to make the journey over to China from Japan. And I guess in the 13th century, it was a dangerous journey to uh, sail over to from Japan to, to China. And he wanted to go there to, to practice to to get exposed to many of the Zen masters, the Chan practitioners in in China, and it was uh, he had a great uh, draw to that. And when he got to China in, in one of the ports there, after uh, getting off the the ship, he saw in the distance this monastic, this monk, who was shopping for food. 
And he was so excited about it that he decided to invite him for for tea. You know, here he is in China, newly found there, and here's this monastic. And and so they they were hanging out. He offered him some tea. And this monk, uh, you know, he wanted to know about this monk, and the monk said to him, "Oh, I'm I'm the uh, the tenzo. So the tenzo in a monastery is the head cook." And I'm from the monastery Mount uh, Iwang, and I'm 61 years old. And he said, tomorrow there's a festival, a festival day at our monastery. And so I came here to this port to buy special mushrooms because I wanted something special to offer the practitioners at the monastery for, for this festival day. And Dogen was curious, you know, so how far away is your monastery? And he said, I think he said something around 10 miles. So that's, I just want to say a long walk. He basically had walked to the, to the, to the port, bought his bundle of mushrooms, and then it needed to turn around to go back immediately because he had to hike another 10 miles to get back there to prepare the meal for the, the festival day. And when Dogen was listening to him, he was quite confused. And the reason why he was confused is because in his mind, here was this senior monastic. He was, he'd spent most of his life as a monk. He was 61 years old, which means, you know, in a monastery, seniority is determined about how, uh, by how long you've been in robes. So he was kind of at the top there in terms of seniority. And, and often when you have that kind of a, a seniority, especially in a Zen monastery, you have much more of an ability to decide what role or position that you'll play in the monastery, what kind of uh, the rhythm of your life, much more than if you're uh, a younger or newer monk. And so Dogen asked him this question. He, he was like, so you, you are venerable in years, means you're a senior monk. And he, so he asked the monk, why don't you sit in meditation to pursue the way or contemplate the words of the Zen masters of old? It is troublesome being the cook. All you do is labor. What good is that? And then the, the older monk laughed and said, my good man, you do not yet understand the journey of the way and do not yet know about written words. And Dogen says, when he heard him speak, he suddenly felt ashamed and taken aback. And it was, Dogen said, this was a really important teaching lesson for him. And he gained so much from this little bit of time that he had with this senior monk. And he, he spent quite a bit of time reflecting on it. And I, I want to share with, with you what he, what he did is he, he actually makes a whole essay about this. But he also found a verse that he felt conveyed some of the teachings he received from this monk. And I just want to share with you the last line of that verse, because I find it interesting and I want to utilize it. And the last line of this verse is, seeking the black dragon's pearl, one finds there are many. So what were the many pearls that Dogen found? He was looking just for one pearl, but he found many through this encounter. Or another way of saying this is, what was that 
a monk trying to convey to Dogen about this path of practice. You could say even this path of practice that we're on here. What does what did Dogen not understand about this path of practice? And I think there are two pearls that I want to talk about, at least that I imagine that that this uh, senior practitioner, the senior monk is attempting to convey to uh, Dogen in the early, early time of his practice. And one is, is to have this broader vision of what it means to engage on a spiritual, uh, on a spiritual path, this path in particular. Well, that was a, a pearl that, that uh, Dogen was not realizing was there. And I want to share some, some things about that. And then also a broader vision of what we consider to be practices, what it means to practice the Dharma. What are all those practices? And which ones are we seeing as part of the path and which ones do we see not as part of the path? So let's, let's slow down with the first pearl right? of the many pearls of the black dragon. I want to point out that sometimes there's an understanding about what we're doing here together, kind of an understanding of the freedom that arises from this path of the Dharma, um, uh, that it's in the context of our personal lives, which is really important, right? That I understand the feeling of freedom or where this, the direction of this path is going in terms of my own life. And hopefully you can relate to this, right? You might meditate, I meditate, or you have self-compassion, you cultivate self-compassion or kindness to yourself. And as a result, you have a deeper sense of well-being and ease at times. You might not be as troubled by the unskillful states of mind. And you might even have, you know, some deeply moving spiritual experiences around impermanence or not self or even joy or equanimity. And it's true, on Monday nights, we spend quite a bit of time exploring how these minds work and how they can cause suffering. And hopefully that we're helping open the doorway for ourselves to freedom and contentment. But hopefully you're hearing, like I'm understanding it in terms of my own life and its impact there. And it's, it's, it's easy to think of freedom in these terms. So it's exploring the path with the sense of, me, I'm becoming more content and freer. And what I want to point out is that's a really good thing. I'm not saying that we should stop doing that. <laughs> I'm not saying, oh, that's bad. It's about broadening. What is it to broaden that? Yes, I mean, keep that going, please. What a wonderful aspiration. So what is to, to broaden that vision? And for me, when I slow down with this story of, of, the, of the cook, or the, this older monastic speaking with Dogen, at least on this day, what I imagine. It's like he's saying, yes, nourish yourself, right? Practice. And nourish others. Can you be t willing to take the long journey, even if it's 10 miles one way, to find the delicious food to offer to others? That too is practice. That's a different vision. 
that I, I practice to nourish myself and others. And it can even be around meditation itself. Sometimes it's an interesting thing to do, to play around with when you begin to meditate. What does it feel like when you have the aspiration, when you meditate? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit down and I'm gonna meditate for myself, to nourish myself, to care for myself, to free this heart and mind, that's wonderful. But what would it be like to start to be like, and I'm going to practice to nourish others? Okay, I'm going to do this walking meditation, this sitting meditation, to nourish myself and others. How does that feel different? And sometimes what I find is it broadens. It broadens the context within which I'm practicing. It makes my meditation feel different. But I'm, I'm, I'm discovering these ingredients in my meditation, and then it, it prepares me to nourish others and myself. And we see this value on this path. Like many of you might know there's a common teaching found in many schools of Buddhism, which is uh, taking refuge, taking refuge in three qualities, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And I want to slow down with uh, taking refuge in the Sangha, which, you know, it traditionally refers to the community of monastics, but it also can refer, its reference is to something much larger than just that. I mean, on, on the broadest scale, the, the word sangha can literally uh, mean like a, any multitude or assemblage. So in one of the texts, it refers to a, like a multitude of birds, a whole, a whole group of birds there, or an assemblage of one's family. And the verb that this word uh, sangha comes from is uh, sang, uh, sanghanati. I'm probably mispronouncing that, which means to come together, to join together, to make complete. So the feeling I get from this, oh, Sangha is actually this activity. It's an activity of a coming together to nourish each other, to offer each other delicious, the delicious and nutritious food of the heart, even if, if we're here in silence. It feels different for me when I get to even meditate together with others in silence. It, it nourishes me and it gives me a chance to nourish others. And in one of the, the discourses that you find in the earliest strata, strata of literature of Buddhism, there's a sutta, the firebrand sutta. And the Buddha points precisely to this, uh, this broader vision. He says that the individual who practices for their own benefit and for that of others is the foremost, the chief, the most outstanding, the highest and supreme. And those of you who have practiced in other schools of, of Buddhism, especially like uh, Tibetan Buddhism, you find this in Zen Buddhism, 
in, in, in Tibetan Buddhism, it's known as this, this aspiration of bodhicitta, practicing for the benefit of all beings. It, it is true in, in Theravada, there is a, a, a big emphasis on that we practice for others, yes, and oneself. Not just for others, for oneself and others. And, and I, I feel like this points to the need for a healthy balance. And I think there's some nuance around this that I want to take some time with, uh, because it can be unbalanced in our lives in terms of how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to others, and also how we, you could say, give or offer. And in that same discourse, the Firebrand Sutta, there is a simile in it. It's an it's a interesting simile. And, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to expand it. You, you can see like the theme tonight, broadening, expanding. <laughs> I'm going to expand the simile a little bit uh, uh, than what we find in the sutta and uh, just to help, us, help it speak to us. And I do want to acknowledge I totally got this expansion of the simile from my partner, Robin. She used this and was like, oh, this is so great. So I have a lot of gratitude for this, this broader understanding of the simile from her. So here's the simile. The simile is it's around a stick. Hopefully, can you see the stick? It's a small stick. I hope you can see it. There's nothing special about it. It's just a stick. <laughs> and actually, Kate, thank you. I think this is one of the, the, the plants that was kind of alive, but now it has a different kind of uh, uh, manifestation here. I'm getting a lot out of these things that you offer. and. Uh, and the first image is, it's like a stick that's burning at both ends. So I can hold it in the middle here, uh, but not on the ends because there's the, 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 the two ends are, are burning. There's, there's a flame there on, on both ends. And, uh, being able to hold it in the middle, middle is representing uh, practicing for myself. It's like practicing for myself is in the middle. And here I can hold it right there. I can practice for myself, but the ends represent others. But I can't practice for others because it's burning there. If I practice for others, I might get burned. And what I think this points to, or one way of understanding, and I'll be curious if you know, others of you might have different understandings of this, which would be great, is sometimes it can feel like if I really offer a lot to others, I'm going to get burned. It's going to feel overwhelming. And some of you might know this experience. It's like, wow, I want to help, but I feel overwhelmed. And so it's kind of a coming inward of, of uh, wanting to practice for others, wanting to offer for others, it feeling like you're going to be too stretched too far. There's fear or worry about that. I can't hold on to those ends. So it feels like that really my practice, I can practice for myself, but not others. And then, and then there's the other extreme of practicing for others and not for myself. And there's one that might be more commonly, uh, sometimes people can uh, relate to this. And then it's different. It's, it's like the simile is that it's no longer burning on the end. So it's easy to hold on to the end. I can practice for others, offer to others. But in the middle, the Buddha says, there's, there's shit in the middle. So I'm not going to hold on to the middle because there's dung there. And how this, I think, can show up is 
it can be this feeling of I'm not going to fully and wholeheartedly practice for myself because I feel like I'm a piece of shit. I don't deserve that. I feel unworthy. And sometimes people report this. It can feel like when one is practicing, it feels selfish. It's like, what am I doing? For example, this can happen on retreats. What am I doing spending all this time bettering myself when there's other people out there? Shouldn't I be helping other people? Like, I, I, I feel like I don't deserve this time. I don't deserve this kind of love and kindness and space. So, yeah, taking care of others, meeting the needs of others, but meeting the needs of yourself, maybe more challenging. And I want to point out this dynamic, you know, this dynamic of you could say putting the needs of others before oneself putting the needs of others in the foreground can show up in a very gendered way. Not always, but there is a gendered conditioning around this. Probably some of you know this. And what I mean is that people who are perceived as female, the conditioning, often the societal conditioning, for some can be deeply conditioned with the idea that that one should put other people's needs before my own, so much so that it's to the exclusion or detriment of my own needs. Anyone relate to these kinds of messages where it's like, oh, it's okay to take care of others' needs, but not mine, and I'll even push myself in a way where I'm forgetting about myself. Some people really talk about this in terms of this dynamic of how patriarchy works in this sense. And what we're looking for is to be able to inhabit the entire space. Yeah, I, I am worthy of practice to take time, fully worthy. I'm worthy, worthy of my love. And the, the, the willingness and the worthiness of offering our practice to others. And so it can get out of balance, finding a balance where I'm not overwhelmed with the needs of others, yet I'm responding. And I'm not overly self-absorbed as well. There's two quotes that I think speak to both of these, um, to both of these, uh, these imbalances and the, the call to be balanced. And, and the first one, uh, speaks to the first imbalance of being overwhelmed. And it comes from Thomas Merton. He speaks to this when he says, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns. Actually, this is the, the second one. To, to, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything, is itself to, this, to succumb to the violence of our times. Frenzy destroys our inner work, our inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our work because it kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. 
to hear what he's pointing to. Like when I take on too much and there are too many demands and concerns and way too many projects, it's a kind of violence that overwhelms me. And then it, it, it prevents me from being a vessel for a deeper sense of wisdom and compassion in the world. That's that sense of where we're out of balance, right? We've taken too much of these, the ends on. We're overwhelmed by it. And then there's a, a caution about the other side. Very simply, John Ruskin says, was, when a person is wrapped up in themselves, they make a pretty small package. There's also something dangerous about being too self-absorbed. And it can happen around the spiritual practice. Both of these are important, the entirety of practicing for oneself and others. So I want to give an example of this expansion, and it's also going to, to, to follow into the second pearl that I want to share with you about just briefly. A number of years ago, I remember uh, a friend of mine uh, tragically died. She, she was on a hike with her family, and I was very good friends with her husband. And the, the family was crossing over this uh, stream. There was a rushing current. And all she did was slip, and then her foot got trapped, and she drowned really briefly. And it was incredibly tragic. You know, young daughter. Uh, they'd been together for, I think, 25 years. And 20, 25 years. And I remember I rushed out to support, you know, my friend and his family. And, you know, it was um, quite interesting for me. Of course, it was a, a challenging time, but I also remember the times of just all of us coming together, you could say to one, practice for myself. I was practicing for myself. I was going through this this tragedy and the, 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 the immensity of what had happened. And for others, for, for the families there and the friends that I'd known for such a long time. And I remember often there would be this, this, this realm of sharing uh, stories and food and hanging out and connecting. And to me, it was the embodiment of practicing for oneself and others. Here I am practicing for my own heart, nourishing my own heart. And also practicing for others. And it felt like we were taking the long walk together to gather the ingredients to nourish ourselves in the midst of challenge. And I mentioned this one because I, I, I really do think that this sense of practicing for oneself and others and this sense of community is so important during times of trouble, whether it's personal trouble or collective trouble. And I share that story because it, it points to an, another the second pearl I wanted to share with you is that often this, uh, this path can, there can be such a heavy emphasis on one thing, which is meditation, which we do when we come here together on Monday evenings. And I just want to be clear, 
I'm so still really down for meditation. I love it. Like, it's a good thing. Like, we're going to do it in just a few minutes. So again, please, I'm not saying like, never do that. It's a horrible thing. But what's it to broaden practice? And, the, and there's so many different dimensions. And the one dimension that I want to share with you is the one of service. I went out to that funeral to serve. What was that older elderly monk doing? What, he, what did he think was the best thing to do as a senior monk, not to be meditating, but to serve as the cook? Why? Because he saw that as a way of understanding the Dharma, as a way of embodying awakening and freedom, was to nourish others. That that is just as valuable as meditation. And it is a value that you find in, in Zen meditation, in, in, in the Zen world, which I think is a it's great to have that influence in terms of insight meditation. Like when I was a Zen monk, you would you would have a role for six months. So you'd either be in the kitchen, for example, in that role like Tenzo, or you'd be taking care of in charge of the meditation hall, or you'd, there's another role of taking care of any guests, or another role of taking care of the practitioners there. The head monk was taking care of the administ administrative stuff. And that was so much of your part of your practice, service. Meditation, yeah, and service. What's that for you in terms of practicing for oneself and others in terms of service? And I want to say it probably looks so different for each and every one of you, but I want to say it's important for this path of the Dharma. And, and hopefully you're hearing is more I talk about it is how this is so blended, practicing for oneself, practicing for others. And I think that's an important question to ask when you practice for yourself and practice for others, how do you skillfully care for yourself? Skillfully awaken and free this heart and mind and to see that it's connected with others or practicing for oneself and for others through service. What does that look like for you? In which ways does it resonate for your heart? Then it can be serving on a more global scale. You know, sometimes I have found when there is so much tragedy in the world and, you know, so happening so often, whether it be in the Ukraine or Ethiopia or, you know, the DRC, even making a donation to some humanitarian aid organization, just that small seed. Oh, this is my service because I have a value here. I do this to practice for myself and to practice for others. Or practicing for oneself, practicing for others on a local scale. For me, it's a lot of it is around FIMC, nourishing this community and being part of this community. This is my practice. It's also a way to practice for others. And probably many of you know, I'm also mentioning this if you're on our mailing list, um, because in light of this transition that FIMC, Flagstaff Insight Meditation Community, is in. You know, some of you might know and receive the notes this morning about that we're going to have a community meeting uh, this coming Thursday night. And I really just want to give a strong encouragement. It's so important to come together as community around this discussion. You know, we, we have let go of this physical pace, space that we've inhabited, FIMC has inhabited 
for it's been just over 10 years, long time. That's a big change to not have a physical space anymore. At least right now, who knows what everybody wants to do as community. And there's also been another big change that's happened during the uh, pandemic, which is that our, our community has drastically changed. It's not just consisting of people in Flagstaff, but it's expanded so much farther and physical distance than just people living in Flagstaff. How do we honor both that, yeah, no longer a space, and our, our communities expanded in this really, to me, touching way. And Thursday night, it's, it's about us coming together to brainstorm. What do these next steps look like for our community? And I want to be clear, I don't know. Like, I'm curious about what your ideas are. What, what's that like to, to see if we can get some collective input? And, and, and don't worry, like, it's not going to be like 30 people trying to like consensus around one idea. You know, it's, the board is going to be there. We're going to try to honor what's there. So it won't be hopefully too much mayhem. And, and also, I want to give a shout out to Angie, Angie Moline. She's going to be there guiding us through, and she has a lot of expertise around this. It's a way to practice. It's not just meditation to come together to, to care for community in this way. So if, if you feel moved, even if you're new to this community, we, so great to, to hear from you. So I wanted to give a, uh, a shout out to that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.